0: Well, amen, amen, and amen. That was uh, just a beautiful time of worship. Thank you, Todd Jackson, again, for uh, bringing that beautiful song of worship during the offertory. Wasn't that beautiful? Makes you want to fly to Jesus right now. And uh, probably for most of us, we have burdens that we bear that make us think, man, glory will taste So much sweeter than our day today, but God is with us now as well, and I look forward to opening up James chapter 1 again in a few moments, but uh, just a few things that are going on just to be aware of. Again, uh, beginning 2011 could be the start of some new things for us. maybe you'd want to enjoy yourself with a upcoming Bible study. You ladies, we have a couple Bible study offerings that are listed in the bulletin. A study on Isaiah on Tuesday evenings is coming up and also Philippians on Thursday mornings. And uh, just look through those announcements under Women's Ministry because I want you to be locked in with the book. And uh, the longer I uh, sort of try to husband well, the more I realize that my responsibility as a husband is to get my wife in the Word and around areas where she can grow and, and find fellowship. And so I would encourage you to, to shepherd your wives that way and women to seek uh, the Word of God that way. Also on Tuesday mornings, we're continuing to study uh, Bible doctrine, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday mornings, but at 6.30 on Tuesday mornings, that's when I uh, sort of share teaching duty with Steve Hatter. And we're opening up the doctrine of salvation um, in some depth and some uh, strong application. So we have a good time. We kind of uh, we, we find out where you know the coffee caffeine sort of wakes us up, and then the Holy Spirit is taking over. We're not exactly sure where that happens, but we're pretty lively, and we enjoy uh, we enjoy the Word of God together. Also, a Men's Night Out coming up next month as well. For you moms, I want to mention something uh, on the bottom left corner of your bulletin. It's called Moms of Grace Grace Playgroup, and that's kind of a new idea and offering women trying to be creative to get together on Fridays, I think, at 10 a.m. at Arctic Playgrounds. I've actually been over there with my kids, with Judy. It's a great place to sort of get outside of the... snow and come come inside and kids, they, they can't tear anything up really that's there. There's a lot of equipment and they, you know, do some things. But what I'm really trying to promote here with this announcement is I want you women to bond together, to have fellowship and to be there for each other. The winters are cold and dark and lonely sometimes and it's good to sort of get outside of the house and have something scheduled. So if you can be a part of that, that's available for you. Also, I mentioned at the beginning of our service that our food table in the back is um, looking for volunteers to bake and to um, be a part of that ministry. We have a flyer as well that um, you can um, pick up and be a part of that ministry if you would like. I think the Arquettes are kind of uh, the ones who are leading out there right now. That's Tim and Jennifer. And if you know Tim, uh, you, you may be aware of the fact that he was actually hospitalized this week. I came by. Mike Weber had uh, told me he was by and I came by and he had some bleeding ulcers, and so the Lord has spared your life, brother. You, the doctor said, you know, either go home and go to bed and wake up um, in glory or uh, go to the hospital. And so we're glad that you, you, you chose the hospital for our sake, and um, we're thankful that, that you're here this morning and that the Lord has uh, sustained your life. But um, what a testimony of service they're serving even this morning. So let's, let's be a part of these things and, and these uh, opportunities Well, at this time, what I'd like you to do is stand up and join in fellowship with each other. Um, Let our hearts be knit together in love for just a few moments together. Stand up and meet and greet. That's right, <laughs> Yeah, that'll 9 work. Saturday morning. Yep. Thank you. All right, let's uh, return to our seats. I want to mention a couple other things just as you're returning to your seat and grabbing your Bibles to turn to James. uh, We do have an Awana ministry here that meets every Wednesday night, but we have an event this Saturday called the Awana Grand Prix, and there's a little bulletin edit that I want to make you aware of. The Grand Prix is actually this Saturday at 9 o'clock in the morning, and I think it's um, noted differently, but the Grand Prix is coming right up, so if you're part of that, um, bring your... Bring your stuff, bring your automobiles that are made of wood, and uh, you know, we'll fellowship in that way as well. Um, also, baptisms are coming up this Lord's Day, and again, just like we prepare our hearts for a communion service, it's another ordinance in the local church, an opportunity for us to see something very special and significant as a couple um, young people, the Applegates from the Applegate family, are going to be baptized. So we're praying for them as they take that step of obedience. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, what we're studying is living faith or a faith that works specifically in verses 1 through 12 regarding the storms of our lives and how we go through storms, not around them, but actually through storms and trials, and these are the tracks that the Bible gives us to run on for going through storms. I want to begin by reading verses 5 through 8 of James chapter 1. ways. Now, around the house, uh, I am not known for my expertise in the culinary arts. In other words, I'm not a good cook. Uh, Whenever I'm sort of breaking out the pots and pans to cook, uh, my kids kind of duck for cover and run. Uh, You know, I've, I've been known to scramble up an egg or two successfully, but that's about my limit. And it's... Thinking of that, a few years back, around Christmas time, I broke out something very difficult for me, and that was macaroni and cheese. Yeah, I'm serious. Anyway, it was actually my effort to combine two boxes worth to to make a big mess of macaroni and cheese, and the kids were kind of out playing, and my wife was coming back from a doctor's appointment, and... So I was trying to get this done to surprise her and have everybody be able to eat lunch. And so I was working through the process, boiling the noodles and checking, you know, uh, the noodle hardness and all that stuff. And it was at the mixing stage, and I realized that I had not taken the appropriate steps beforehand to make sure I had all of the materials I would need for successful macaroni and cheese meaning I didn't have any milk in the fridge. I went for the milk, there was no milk, and Judy's basically coming in the door, you know, and I need to get this done, and it's ready to go, and there was nothing to grab, but then I saw on the side door of the refrigerator, and it was right around Christmas time, some eggnog. (laughs) And so I went for it, right? I put the right amount in there and just mixed it in. It kind of looks like milk, and, you know, we'll just make this thing happen. And I'm thinking the cheese will make it all right. You know, they won't. They won't know any difference. So the kids come, and I'm doling it out, and really positive. Oh yeah, try this the macaroni and cheese. A little bit special macaroni and cheese. And and the kids went, oh yeah, it's special, all right. You know, they're what is this? And so then Judy comes over, and she's actually I think taking up my cost. Kids, eat your macaroni and cheese. You know, what are you doing? So oh, here's your macaroni, dear. And so I'm watching her, and she was pregnant with the twins, and kind of nauseous and, you know, it just wasn't a good scene for her to take that first bite and kind of work that around in her mouth. But all that to say, uh it became a blog article at, at some point, and Judy um, titled that moment Kratzimus Macaroni. And so, uh yeah, forever I've been labeled as um, not really good at cooking or actually anything in terms of plants or growth, I, I'm just not good with that. I, I can't keep anything alive. I drown it or, or I, uh, you know, will starve it to death, a plant. And, and I've tried to actually use some of these things as uh, um, counseling techniques to talk about how when someone is struggling, they need to think through the conditions surrounding their struggle. In other words, if you're suffering from depression or guilt or despair and you need some hope, then I like to say let's go back to the basics of how do you grow spiritually? Are you someone like a plant that's, that's being put over by the sunlight in the window? Or are you, are you receiving the appropriate plant food? Uh, do you, are you being cultivated well? In other words, as a Christian, are you reading the Word of God? Are you meditating on the Scripture? Are you surrounding yourself with relationships in the body of Christ? Are you just doing the basic things that can set you up to then grow and flourish spiritually spiritually? through trials, even if the trials are going to remain for a period of time. This is what James is doing in verse 5. He has acknowledged that this early church is suffering and going through difficult times. We talked about it last week, that this is the first book that was written in the New Testament, probably sometime around A.D. 45, and James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was known as an early pillar and leader in the church, was reaching out to these new believers, these baby Christians, who would have been known as Jewish believers, those who were still associated with the Twelve, tribes of Israel, as verse 1 says, who were dispersed. They were part of the dispersion. In other words, they were like like spore seeds that were blown in the wind and cast out of their homes for their faith. They were the Jewish people who believed in Jesus, who saw Jesus as the God-man and said, you're the Messiah, and I'm going to follow you no matter what, even if it means losing wealth, even if it means losing my heritage, even if it means." Difficult times with mom and dad. Even if it means that I'm going to have to move and move to safer locations. And that's who James is addressing here. This book of the Bible isn't just a New Testament book of Proverbs. This is a heartfelt book to a hurting people who are undergoing severe pressure and trials. And these words apply to you even in your suffering today. It's wisdom And what we talked about last time is that the church was to count it all joy in the midst of intense suffering. In other words, as the pressure mounts on the shoulders of believers, they are to gain godly mindsets. They are to gain a perspective where they see the trial as something the Lord is laying on the person that they are to bear up under. And as they bear up under the difficult trial, the Lord is producing something in them. Producing, verse 3, it says, steadfastness. In other words, producing spiritual muscle and strength to continue to endure through the suffering. Not to go around it, not to, as the pressure comes on, to escape out from under it, but to say, okay, this is from the hand of God. He's given it to me. And it's for my good. Even if I can't make complete sense of the details and circumstances and why this had to happen to me, it's for my good. It's it's creating in me Christ-likeness, which James describes as being perfect and complete, where you're lacking in nothing. Where every area of your character is being challenged and rounded out in unique ways with unique, God-given, specific trials. Now, it's not easy to count something like that as joyful, is it? It's difficult. It's hard to see difficult times as something that's good for me. And that's what verse 5 begins to address. This verse is not just airdropped into the chapter. This is directly linked to what James had just said. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. You know what James is saying there? He's saying simply this. You need to pray and ask God for help if the counsel that he's just given to you doesn't make sense. If you can't gain a Godward perspective about your trial, if you can't see that as a good thing for your life, if you can't make sense of it, then James as a tender shepherd is saying simply this, you have a generous God in heaven who wants to help you make sense of it. Who, help, who wants to help you see your way clear through the difficult times. That's what wisdom is here. If you're having a, time, having a tough time working through your trial, then simply seek the Lord for help. That's what our message is all about. James, again, this half-brother of Jesus A man who had mocked Jesus along with his brothers, taunting him, saying, Look, Jesus, if you're really who you say that you are as the Messiah, then go to the Feast of Tabernacles. This is John 7, verses 1 through 5. Go to the Feast of Tabernacles and show them your stuff. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about how Jesus actually appeared to James, verse 7, and James was believing This is the James, the half-brother of Jesus, the one who wrote this epistle. Not to be confused with James, the brother of John, the apostle. He would have died already a martyr's death. This man was a pillar, and he was trying to help this hurting church. Look again at verse 5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom. That word lacks connects immediately back with verse 4. Verse 4, James is saying, listen... I don't want you to be lacking in anything. You should be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. However, if you're lacking wisdom, if, if you see the word connection, if you're lacking the ability to grasp what's going on, it's so hard and this just doesn't make sense, then you need to pray about it. That's what he's saying. Ask God for help. Well, for an outline, let's frame the passage in this way. God's wisdom promise is made glorious under three conditions. And this is a magnificent promise in the Bible. This is a promised solution to our difficult times. It's a promise that's given to us when we pray for it. And we need to pray for this promise under three conditions. Conditions just like I was talking about, where you set a plant up to grow and to be cultivated. Conditions where you actually follow the directions of a recipe and you produce food that's edible. These are conditions to see a prayer request answered. Look again at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him what a promise! It will be given him. Don't you want a prayer life where you know that you could ask for something... ...and there's a promise that it's going to be given to you? You say, but we're not supposed to think that way, right? I mean, we're supposed to pray and just trust the Lord... ...and he kind of works out the details of whether or not he wants to give you what you ask? Isn't that how you understand prayer? That you know, we don't have guarantees this side of eternity to, to have certain requests... Answered, Well, this is a little bit different than um, when we're praying about circumstances. Because it's true, we can't pray and dictate how circumstances are going to turn out, can we? No. But we can pray for this and know that God will give you this. He will give you wisdom. God generously wants to give this to us. He, He wants to overflow this upon us. ...as a loving father. The key is to understand what is wisdom here. Wisdom is not the kind of practical wisdom that the world thinks of... ...where you're thinking, okay, how can I make a wise decision to go in this direction or that direction... ...and God is going to actually tell you the specific way to go. What college to go to, what, who to marry, you know, what to do with your life, what job to, to have. That's not what James is talking about at all. This is spiritual insight... This is spiritual sightedness. The book of James has been criticized as, you know, held under scrutiny by scholarship as to whether it's really a true book of the Bible. Because people have said, look, the word Holy Spirit or spirit is not mentioned in this book. But under this specific word in verse 5, wisdom, that's where you find the Holy Spirit's involvement in the life of the believer. In the Old Testament, wisdom is to be sought sought after more than riches and gold and all the wealth in the world, Proverbs 2 talks about. And wisdom is, is spiritual in this sense. The Old Testament believer, remember, would say, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. In other words, let me not just read verses 1 through 4 about suffering through trials. Let me actually embrace this truth. And that's the wisdom factor. That's where the Holy Spirit's opening our eyes to say... ...that's exactly what I'm supposed to do. And I think that the Holy Spirit is involved... ...even in your heart in specific ways. Even as I preach this word... ...you probably are thinking through what I'm saying... ...through your personal experiences, aren't you? Through your griefs that you bear... ...through your difficulties... ...through your own individual suffering packages. And you could say in your heart, Lord... I need wisdom to make it through. And as you pray that prayer, you could be applying, and I would suggest you do this, verses 2 through 3 to say, Lord, how can I count it all joy to go through what I'm going through? Like I said last week, it's easy to count it mostly joy or a little bit joyful, but how can I see it as all joy and how can I see my specific thing you know, that my girlfriend left me or, or my job situation's difficult or I've got a rebellious teenager or an adult child that's away from the Lord. How can I see that as joyful? And Lord, how can I see that as something that, that is working good in my life? That's wisdom. Because God can and will give you the assurance that he is working all of those things together for your good. That's what God promises to do for you. He does. He promises to love His children in that way. A lot of people define wisdom in worldly terms. They either make it a practical how-to book or, you know, the secret key to success in life. Um, they define it mystically. in the Old Testament times, New Testament times and present times, people have always wanted to sort of have the higher knowledge, sort of gnostic knowledge that's just out of reach. You have postmodern Christian movements that are saying, look, it's more spiritual not to be able to fully understand the mystery of the word here. And real spirituality is just kind of navigating through something that you can't fully grasp in clarity. That's the exact opposite of what James is talking about. James is saying that God is promising to clarify the word in your life and heart as you go through a difficult time. He, he's promised to do that. He wants to do that for you as a believer. And it makes all the sense in the world. It's just like where Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not um, revealed that to you. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. That's how it was just supposed to be. That's exactly what Jesus wanted to hear. He didn't want people to be sort of ambivalent or kind of questioning whether jesus was the messiah he wanted the spirit to awaken people's hearts to say my lord and my god as thomas did when he touched his wounds right it's that wow effect where you say you know the word of god is precious it's gold and silver to me that's what our father promises to do for us it's embracing truth it's seeing by faith Jeremiah 9, um, 23, talks about how the man, you know, let not the man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might, uh, but let him who boasts boast in this, what? That he understand and understands and knows me, right? Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not some worldly wise person boast in how much he thinks he knows. Not, let not the mighty man boast in how strong he thinks he is. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows God. As believers, you understand so much more about what's going on in the world than you could imagine compared to people who don't have spiritual mindsets, right? Psalm 119 is where the psalmist said that he knows more than the aged. How could he say that? Doesn't that sound arrogant? No. It's just the fact that we know who created this universe, We know who sustains the universe. We know who holds everything together. We know why certain people um, are healthy and certain people are not. We know why sickness and sadness and suffering is in the world. We understand um, things about the demonic realms that are going on and angelic realms that are happening. We understand things about the nations. We understand things about false religion and we understand why we are surrounded in the truth, right? I mean, we we understand things about the afterlife. We understand things about babies being created in the womb. I mean, we have a lot of wisdom that is from the word of God. It's amazing. And that's comforting to us. But that is a gift that is given to us by God. And it helps us to cope and figure out our lives. It does. And that's what he's saying here. God gives it generously to all Without reproach. Again, defining wisdom in First Corinthians. In First Corinthians, and you might turn over there. The Apostle Paul was defining his ministry of preaching along the lines of spiritual wisdom. The church at Corinth, as you know, was kind of a messed up place, and it was part of a, an early church split where you had people who were lining up under Peter and people who were lining up under Paul as a leader and Apollos, and saying, "I was baptized by this person." And uh, I was baptized by Christ, and so I'm more special than you are. And what Paul does in verse 18 of chapter 1 is he sort of cuts through the arguments by saying, listen, we do not need to be operating in terms of worldly wisdom. We don't need to go there. We don't need to go after ministry in terms of what is folly to the Lord. He talked about how people are saved, verse 18, by the power of God, how the cross is folly to those who are perishing he quotes isaiah 29 he says i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and in verse 20 he says has not god made foolish the wisdom of the world in verse 21 he talks about the wisdom of god and how preaching what we preach is is folly unless you believe but what is the message of wisdom look at verse 23 He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. You know what the wisest message that you know out of all the wisdom that you've been granted is? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Any trial that you're going through can be brought underneath that message. Why do I exist? I exist because... I've been transformed by a wisdom message, and that is Christ in him crucified. How can I help someone that's hurting? I can tell them the message, Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins. Now, there's a lot more in the word of God to aid in detail people's lives and suffering, and I understand that. But in terms of just mega themes, Paul is saying that the foolishness of the cross is what cuts through worldly techniques and wisdom. A lot of people look for answers in pop psychology. They look for answers, you know, by watching Oprah or watching different things to to get practical solutions. And and really, the baseline place for us to begin is the gospel. It is, and it's, it's what God has promised to open up in our thinking when we ask him to do that. You might say, look, I am so depressed. I'm so discouraged, and I'm so despairing. And the word from James is, listen... Just pray to God about that for help. So first of all, we need to see this God as generous who will give us help. How do you view God? Do you view God as the God of the universe who just sort of knows things in generic detail and sort of keeps things going? Or do you view God as the God who knows your soul and your life in specifics? You view God in that way, as your father, who knows your life in detail. Just like how I might know what's going on with my youngest, Owen. You know, he's... he's to bed, you know, when he's put to bed at night, I, I'm thinking about his breathing. If I'm kind of responsible for his care, is he breathing well? Is he, is he changed? Is he fed? Is he, you know, does, does he have his, his bottle? You know, does he have his bi'i, his blanket? You know, is that comforting to him? You know, where is he in life? How is his health? What, what's his age? You know, what's that rash all about? Where's that going? You know, and I mean, I, I know a lot about what's going on even when he's sleeping and God knows about you in that way in an infinitely more specific and grand and loving way that you could not even imagine. He knows everything about every breath that you're going to take. He knows everything about and is involved in every word, every thought, every anxiety that you're suffering, every detail. He's in charge of that. He's aware of that. And in that context, that's the context for which we ask for help. God, open my thinking up so I can, I can get a handle on how the gospel is involved in my life through this difficult time. Matthew 7 comes to mind where Jesus taught about you know, fathers on earth, how when sons ask for bread, will he give you a stone? When they ask for a fish, will he give you a serpent. And in that context, Jesus says, just ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open to you. We taught on that a few months ago. But it's all flowing out of understanding that we have a Heavenly Father that cares about us like that. And you say, look, you know, when you talk about earthly fathers giving food, didn't you just talk about this macaroni deal? I mean, now look, I wasn't trying to do that to my kids on purpose. I mean, my heart was actually to give them something good to eat. I just need to know my limitations. Generously, without reproach. Look at verse 5 again. What does it mean that God gives us things without reproach? God will give you wisdom with no strings attached. He's not going to shame you for giving you wisdom. He's not going to say, oh, there you go again. You're asking me for help again. I, I know that you, you know, asked me 20 times already, so you're asking me for 21. Okay, I'll give you wisdom to see that Jesus is more precious than your trial once again. No. God's waiting in heaven for you to ask and and to bless you and to pour this bucket load of blessing on you and say thank you for asking. I'm I'm going to open your your horizons a little bit wider and I'm going to take your faith a little bit deeper again. And He is excited about that. The word generous here, generously in verse five, that is a word that's only used one time in the New Testament and it's right here. And so it's sort of a a hard to fully define word in the English language. It's it's God lavishing blessing upon us. It's him bursting over wanting to give us this kind of loving help in difficult times. First of all, we need to see God as generous. I'm using the word seeing as a um, sort of synonym for faith. We, We see him as generous. And secondly, we need to see self or ourselves as empty. See self as empty. I think so often it's a real temptation for us to reach down deep inside our own lives and our own experiences to say, okay, how can I wisely navigate, through, navigate my life through this one? I wasn't expecting this trial to happen, and so now I have to figure out X, Y, and Z and what, what political or, or you know, strategic move I need to do to make things work out. And that's exactly the opposite of what James is saying here. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. Stop there. It's kind of a tall order again. It reminds me a lot of counting it all joy, all joy, not mostly joy or a little bit joyful and a little bit anxious, but in this way, in verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting is very similar. You're, you're to ask with full assurance in faith for help. That's the precondition for God blessing in this way. Martin Luther, as many of you know, was a Reformation scholar. He commented on this verse, and he was a little bit negative about this epistle in general, calling it a right straw epistle, but he liked this verse a lot. He said that this is one of the best verses in this epistle. And the reason he said that is because he was an all-in, sort of robust, go-for-it kind of guy. He was a a theologian who wasn't afraid to shake it up and rattle some cages and to say some things, even some things that would be on the edge in terms of vocabulary use and whatever, just to get his points across. And what he wanted to do here is he wanted to highlight the fact that James is saying you need to be all-in in your faith and in your request for help to see blessing in your life. And it's so similar to Hebrews uh, 11. Flip over a couple pages to your left. Hebrews eleven six. 6. This is the faith chapter. Faith, verse 1, is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Not physically seen, but spiritually seen, right? And then verse 6 puts it this way. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. That's a precondition. To be acting in genuine, authentic, supercharged faith, you've got to believe that you have a God who will bless you for going to Him. If you're going to draw near to God, you must believe that He exists and that He's a God who wants to bless you. Now, do we have a God like that? Amen? Amen. Do we believe that our Heavenly Father loves us in that way, even through difficult storms? It's counterintuitive. When bad things are happening to us, we want to say, God, why are you doing this to us? Maybe I'm going to second-guess your character. And James says, don't do that. Instead, throw yourself upon the mercy of a loving Heavenly Father who wants to lavish you with joyful blessing, with insight to be able to cope through difficult times. Martin Luther, he, he was funny. I talked about how he said things that were on the edge. I heard him quoted recently as saying something like this. We need to, as Christians, sin boldly. Man, does that not kind of wake you up? What does that mean? Well, obviously, the Bible never allows for us to sin. We're to be holy as God is holy. But if you understand the context of what Luther was saying is saying is that he is saying this. He was saying, look, when you... Make a decision to do something in life. Once you've made your decision, set your jaw and jump full feet, both feet in, and go for it. Go all the way. And then you may find out that it's actually sinful and you might have to change directions. But when you set your mind to do something, go for it. Be all in. Don't hold back. And in the same manner, when we ask God for wisdom, we need to not hold back. We need to believe that God is the rewarder of those who seek him. We're asking in faith. This is where the tables are sort of turned. In James chapter 1, it says, but let him ask in faith. It's as if James is saying, listen, you've got a generous father who's ready to bless you, but now the pressure is put on your shoulders to ask in faith. Reminds me of those who were healed in the New Testament when Jesus would come along and say the phrase, your faith has made you well. Do you remember those scenarios? Do you remember the woman who was bleeding and had the issue of blood? She was hemorrhaging and she was sort of navigating her way through the crowds, trying to get to the hem of the garment of Jesus, just to lay hands on Jesus' clothes, believing that the Messiah's power could come to her for healing. And Jesus is walking along and the crowds are pressing in and the apostles are sort of trying to get people back so he can get through. And Jesus experiences uh, the effect of his power going through him to this woman where she is healed and says, who touched me? The apostles, very incredulously and um, kind of in a standard way, said, what do you mean who touched you? Of, Of course people are touching you. We're trying to hold the crowds off. But Jesus knew that the power had flowed from him to a woman who was believing in him. That's where the power was. That was was where the connection was. That's what made her touch unique and different from everybody else clamoring for him. They all wanted him, right? They wanted something from him. Here's the magical man who can help us. Here's the one who can give us sort of the, the quick answers to our lives. Here's the one who can feed us. And then you have the one who stands out in that passage who comes by faith and touches him, believing. And Jesus addressed this woman, asked her about what she did, and ultimately said, Your faith has made you well. Now what does that mean? Does that mean, mean, and I think a lot of times churches teach this, that if we just muster up enough faith within ourselves that we'll see effects powerfully happen around us, that, that if we can just, ooh, in our own strength, believe hard enough, then something will happen? That's not what Jesus was saying there, and that's not the message that he communicated through his ministry. What Jesus was saying when he said, your faith has made you well is, you are a genuine believer, he was authenticating her faith and saying, your faith is authentic. You genuinely believed enough to, that we didn't even have to have a conversation or dialogue about your problem. You believed in me enough that if you even touched my clothes that you would be made well. And so that is the real thing. That is real faith. That's lasting faith. And that is the faith that will give the Messiah, and his heavenly father, glory. And that's why Jesus would say, listen, your faith has made you well. In other words, you have real faith that has just glorified this moment. It's very important. It's a very important distinction the difference between genuine faith and sort of this fake faith or fickle faith. There were a lot of people who claimed to be believers and they'd they'd come to Jesus in droves and then Jesus would start preaching hard about sin and about denying yourself and following Jesus even to the death, even to the death, and people would, what, disperse and run away from Jesus. But there were those who would stand out like blind Bartimaeus, you know, like the woman at the well, like this woman who was healed with her issue of blood, Like the woman in John chapter 8 verses 1 through 12 who was going to be stoned to death. Who had faith and people were healed of their sinful condition and they were healed of their physical maladies. Demons were cast out when faith was present. And it wasn't the faith that that made Jesus heal them. It was the faith that was authentic and real and Jesus healed because it was there and it was real so that Jesus would receive glory. He actually withheld himself from healing people in John chapter 2 because he knew their hearts were not authentically believing. So we need to have real faith. We need to have faith that is lasting, persevering, and strong. Because look what the Bible says in verse 6. It says, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Look at verse 7, a very discouraging verse. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Let's stop there. If you're sort of a person who is trying to wrestle through your trial and say, Lord, how can I make it through? Please give me help, but at the same time I'm going to divert my attention back to my own resources, my own mental strength, or my own sort of self-trust or trusting worldly methods, then you're going to be a person who shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. You've got to have full faith in Christ for this promise to be put in place in your life. You'll be like a person, verse 6 says, who's tossed to and fro... On a wave of the sea. I was telling somebody last night that last week I gave a surfing illustration and I didn't want to give, you know, surfing or beach or waves illustrations in back-to-back weeks, but here we go. I mean, I can't resist. I mean, it's in the text, okay? Here it is. It wasn't my fault. Um, But for many of you, you know, I grew up on the east coast and I was a lifeguard for a lot of summers, a handful of summers, and so I saw a lot of different turbulent um, waters and waves and Things that I either would have to swim through or pull people out of, and what we would do sometimes when it would get so bad when a northeaster would come in and it would be just tumultuous and like a washing machine out there, is we would just shut down the whole beach. It just wasn't good for even a child to touch their toe in the shore break because that child could just be gobbled up by the shore break or, or you know thrown one way or the other. I've actually walked in from surfing or playing in the ocean, and you probably have too, where you think you're safe and you're right on the edge, and then this swell comes, it's a set wave, and it just blows you up and throws you on your head and drags you around, and you're thrown around like a rag doll. We would secure ourselves with uh, you know life buoys for fun when we would shut the beach down because it was too dangerous to be out there. Well, we would go out there and we would, we would sort of test ourselves in the water and be thrown all around back and forth, up and down. And you would get so turned upside down that you wouldn't know which way was up. And all you could really do is hold your breath really well as best as you could and just drop like a, a limp you know, noodle you know, out in the water so that you just wouldn't dare to try to save yourself. This is the condition of heart that is explained by James. When you're going through a difficult time, a struggle that is sort of backbreaking in your life, and you're divided in your attention between God and the wisdom that he can give you to get you through, and the world's wisdom, then you're just tossed up and down and to and fro in your heart, right? That's where God does not want you to be. Verse 8 calls it being double-minded. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If this is the characteristic testimony of your life or a person's life, then that person shouldn't really have the assurance of their salvation because they're not fully showing themselves as a person who trusts God. However, at the same time, I know that many believers, and myself to a varying degree, struggle from this double-mindedness state. And it's, it's a tough place to navigate through. To be double-minded... Uh, literally means to be two-souled. It means that you're too, you have two faces looking in opposite directions. You're like the, the cowboy who got on his horse and rode off in all directions at one time. It's what uh, John Bunyan from Pilgrim's Progress called Mr. Facing Both Ways. You had Christian who's on his journey to the celestial city and he's navigating through these different characters. And the biblical character that came out of this verse in Bunyan's mind was Mr. Facing Both Ways because he was proving the point that in the physical life you can't face both directions at the same time and you can't do it spiritually either. Aurelius Augustus, you probably have heard of him as the Bishop of Hippo. He was around in the 300s and early 400s. And before he became this great bishop and theologian who shaped much of Christian thinking, he was just a rank sinner who was living for his own carnality and lust. And if you were to read his confessions, he confesses his sinfulness and his former manner of life. But sort of out of this idea of being double-minded, he said, Oh Lord, this was a prayer that he used to pray before he was saved. Oh Lord, grant me purity, but not yet. Right. That kind of duplicity hurts us spiritually. It does. We're called to be like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says. We're called to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him and know that he will direct our paths. That's what this verse is. That's, that's, this is a reflection of that verse. All of our hearts. And God will give us direction. Direction through... The storm not around. It reminds me of Mark 12 where, um, and you might turn over there, where Jesus was coming and healing and he was talking to uh, this man who had come with his son to be healed by the disciples. And in verses 19 and following, he's talking about how he brought his son to the disciples and the disciples could not cast a demon out of his child's life. The demon was so terrorizing the child and the father that the, the father was left with, with no options but to throw himself at the mercy of God. The son was throwing himself into fire, throwing himself into water, and it was this, this demon, demonized child who was convulsing and frothing at the mouth. If you've ever had a child that you were... You were fearing that would, would drown. You know that kind of fear that, that wells up in the heart of a, of a father. So the father was at the end of himself. And ultimately, Jesus, when he found out that the disciples were unable to um, pray this demon out, uh, he, was, he was sort of exasperated and saying, Oh, faithless generation, sort of exhausted with the idea that they, they weren't praying in full faith. And Jesus was very concerned in this, in this story to draw the man out because he wanted to see where this man's faith really was before he cast the demon out of the child. And so he gets into a dialogue with the father, and the father's talking about his son being cast into the, into the fire, into the water, verse 22, um, to destroy him. And then the father says, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus picks up on that phrase because he's sensing from the Father sort of a double-mindedness there. And he says, it says, Jesus said to him, verse 23, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And then, you know, the demon ramps up and, and ultimately Jesus heals the child. But the primary point of this passage is found in verse 24. It says, immediately the Father of the child, cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. That's the heart of a believer. I'm not saying, and I don't believe the book of James is saying, that your faith has to be perfect this side of eternity. It just has to be singularly focused to be blessed. And the way to bring your faith into single focus is to say what this man said in utter desperation. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to persevere. Help me to continue to cast myself upon you, cast my anxieties upon you, knowing that you'll lift me up, knowing that you'll help me through. Help my unbelief. Give me an undivided heart. All right, let's just wrap this up with a few take-home points. We'll hit point three uh, next week and start there, but take home points. Number one, when life is desperate, it is normal to actively or passively throw out our most powerful and most reliable source of strength. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Like where I begin in James 1.5, just ask your generous father for help. The Spirit of God is accessible and He wants to open our hearts up to be encouraged. He does. And a way to counsel people might be to take this take-home sheet that's available for you and actually work through these points with people in counseling to say, Listen, all of what James 1 is talking about is found in the person of Jesus Christ. You want to know the summary of all wisdom? The book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of the Song of Solomon all the wisdom of the Old Testament, all the Solomonic wisdom that was displayed in his kingdom, all of the 66 books of the Bible are summarized in the person of Jesus Christ. And Colossians 2 speaks of that. How God's mystery, which means that it wasn't yet fully revealed in the Old Testament who Jesus was or what the cross would mean, all of that opened up in Christ in whom are hidden All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Like I said before, the summary of wisdom. To know Christ and Him crucified. The end of 1 Corinthians 2. We have the mind of Christ. It's all found in the Word. The Word of God is the wisdom of God. It's another point. And then, under point 1, the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. We know that from Proverbs 1.7. You know what that means? I used to think you know, get to the practical stuff in Proverbs. You know, Proverbs 1, 2, and 3, it's like it's talking about lady wisdom calling for us in the streets and how we're to love wisdom more than gold and silver. Right, well, tell me how to parent. You know, where, where's the how-to stuff? Where's the nitty-gritty stuff? You know, I need it. And, and really the whole point that Solomon's making in Proverbs is just that we need to first and foremost humble ourselves in reverential awe before God and say, God, I believe, but help my unbelief open my mind up to truth so that what I already know from scripture will be brought to bear as I navigate through very difficult trials, and I'm not necessarily going to know step one, two, and three of what next to do. But I do need to know that I need to have a humble heart through the trial. All right. Point two, suffer for Christ. Do not suffer for self. No, know a lot of you suffer from physical ailments, but if you're suffering for self and you're self-consumed, your physical Health is going to be affected. Number two, suffering for self. It hurts people around you if you're filled with anxiety and you're upset all the time, and despairing and discouraged and sort of in a woe is me effect. You're going to hurt other people, your family, your children, your friends. Number C is suffering for self hurts gospel witness. You can't really be strong in your gospel witness and say you believe the gospel if your life isn't affected by it, right? And so a lot of times we're kind of talking ourselves out of evangelism because we're living in this self-focus instead of exulting in Christ and realizing that he is enough and he is more than enough to see me through trials. And when you have a full faith effect going on where you're all in for Christ, you'll see witnessing opportunities will come to you more and more because you'll stand out as different. And letter D, suffering for self hurts faith. It'll hurt your faith. It'll hurt your own individual walk if you're suffering um, sort of making yourself your own God where you put your suffering um, in the forefront of your mind as the idol that you continue to worship. Do you have a thought that reoccurs to you every morning that you have to fight off? You know, like, wow, if I could only fix that, you know. What my wife always reminds me of is when I get that way and I I fix one thing, she says, you know, it's great you fix that one. You know, you you sort of, what's the next one that you're going to have to to live for to fix? And that's that mindset of living for yourself, where you think that you'll be satisfied if you sort of knock that, that one down or this one down, but instead you have to go up above all of that and say, Lord, you're working out all things together for good. Number three. God's heart for his children exceeds the imagination. This side of eternity, we will never know how much God loves us, but he loves you more than you can imagine. Let's all sort of commit together to cast ourselves upon him because he cares for us and will see us through life's tough times. I know you guys have difficult things that are going on in your life, and I believe that's why we're at James 1, providentially so that you can be cared for with the Word of God. Don't go through your storm alone. Reach out to each other and reinforce these principles from God's Word in your life so we can seek wisdom together and stand strong for the purpose of God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for time in the Scripture. Thank you that we can learn from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We can learn from... James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote great words for us that are practical and meaty and helpful. I pray, God, that we would live out our gospel commitments by opening our hearts and our minds to you, seeing you as most precious and most glorious, and not in any way trading your glory for cheap substitutes, for what the world tries to offer and dangle out in front of us as something that's more valuable than you. You are preeminent. You are Lord over everything. And Lord, for those who are deeply hurting, who are wounded, who are struggling, I pray that they would pray the prayer of that Father, that you would help their unbelief as they believe. Lord, for any who are here who do not yet know you, I pray that you would draw them now to yourself, that they would see Jesus Christ as their Savior, as the one who died on the cross 2,000 years ago, was buried and rose again on the third day to conquer sin and death. And I know that if there's someone who has not yet believed, that everyone else in this room that has believed is praying for that person. And so I pray that you would bring new life in our room, in our midst, that you would bring salvation and regeneration and healing, and that God, we could stand as the family of God that is redeemed by the blood of Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand up now as we're closing off this glorious day. And I just want to encourage you again, if you need spiritual help in any way, we're up front and ready to talk and share our hearts with you and pray with you. Enjoy the table fellowship in the back. We have some remaining, probably bear meat in the back and food. and and fruit and things, and uh, juice and coffee to wash it all down. Stick around, enjoy yourselves together in the Lord, and have a glorious week.